Hello, listeners. I'm Amanda. I'm Jamia. I'm Jamila. And we are Lib Voices, here from librarians of color with speaks to the fullness of their careers, including successes and challenges. How do they do it? Join us to find out more about their Lib Voices. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2. Today we have an interview with Sophia Noble. Dr. Sophia Umoja Noble is an associate professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, in the Department of Information Studies, where she serves as the co-founder and co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. She also holds appointments in African-American studies and gender studies. She is a research associate at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, and has been appointed as a commissioner on the Oxford Commission on AI and Good Governance. She is a board member of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, serving those vulnerable to online harassment and serves on the NYU Center Critical Race and Digital Studies Advisory Board. She is the author of a best-selling book on racist and sexist algorithmic bias in commercial search engines entitled Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism which has been widely reviewed in scholarly and popular publications. Sophia is the co-editor of two edited, edited volumes, The Intersectional Internet, Race, Sex, Culture, and Class Online, and Emotions, Technology, and Design. She currently serves as an associate editor for the Journal of Critical Library and Information Studies and is the co-editor of the Commentary and Criticism section of the Journal of Feminist Media Studies. She is a member of several academic journal and advisory boards and holds a PhD and MS in Library and Information Science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a BA in Sociology from California State University, Fresno, where she was recently awarded the Distinguished Alumni Award for 2018. Recently, she was named in the top 25 doers, dreamers, and drivers of 2019 by Government Technology Magazine. So what drew you to librarianship? That's an interesting question because I was really interested, you know, I was thinking about knowledge, culture. I mean, these are things that I've cared about for a long time, was interested in. And, you know, I've never been a practicing librarian, even though I have an MLIS and a PhD in library and information science. I've never worked in a library. I've only trained librarians from the research side, working in the university. Uh, So, you know, in that respect, I can't really say too much about the practice, but I will say in theory, um, librarians are some of the most important people in our society. They're people who are responsible for the future of knowledge, for what will be taught, what will be available, what will be preserved, Um, made accessible, and what will fade away, what will be purged from the consciousness of a society. So I feel like it's a great honor to get to treat to teach librarians and prepare them for that role. And of course, I understand that and my my own work and kind of pedagogy is informed by thinking about the most vulnerable in our societies, uh, people of color, thinking about issues of racial justice, gender equity, poverty and kind of the uneven distribution of wealth in our societies 
and how important it is for us to center those concerns in our work, all of us, no matter what kind of work we do, but especially people who are keepers of knowledge and education. As a BIPOC library educator, uh, what do you view as critical to the success of the field? We're living in a moment where millions of people are willing to put their health and their well-being on the line to go out into the streets in calls for racial justice in the United States and beyond. And that tells us a lot about the state of our society and the degree to which um, dealing with the longstanding oppression in our country um, has to be attended to. And it has to be attended to regularly because civil rights and human rights are constantly being eroded. As quickly as we scaffolded up a civil rights uh, um, civil rights legislation and voting rights and you know worked to ensure kind of electoral participation, let's say, of black people in this country, there were people working to dismantle it. And we see the effects of that in this last two presidential elections, where there's been an extremely aggressive effort to undermine and disenfranchise Black people in our society. So I think those things are at the front of my mind when I think about the role that libraries, for example, play in educating voters and registering voters and um, creating access to education and different kinds of possibilities. It's, it's really crucial to me that we take seriously these public democratic institutions called libraries and the role that they play in supporting a struggle for a more just society. That's the point of democratic institutions is to foment and support democracy. So you, how can you talk about believing in libraries, believing in these public democratic institutions, and then you play no role actively and aggressively in ensuring democracy, multiracial democracy, full participation in every level of um, our society, economically, socially, politically. So to me, that's what I think about when I think about our fields and what our responsibility is. It's not uh, frosting on an already baked cake to just add some social justice, add a little Black History Month, you know, throw in a token Black librarian here and there. These concerns should be at the heart of the way we organize librarianship and these institutions. And to me, that is an extremely exciting sector of the economy to work in, which is this kind of knowledge and information economy and the role that it can play in equalizing our societies around the world. I love that with oftentimes, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, accessibility is often the afterthought, it's not the forethought, it's not incorporated into the very aspects of librarianship. And hopefully people will understand the importance of thinking about it throughout, you know, the beginning stages of their planning. 
and policymaking. <laughs> so I think that goes to the next question. How do you promote equitable practices through your work in information studies? Well, one of the challenges that I have in my career as a professor of information studies is that the field of uh, librarianship is you know, generally hostile to Black people uh, and to people of color in, in that we have not made a welcoming environment in most library information studies and science programs around the country to center the concerns that people of color have about lack of access to high quality information and knowledge and participation um, in our society, right? So I, I think that is one of the more challenging dimensions of my work is on the teaching side, which is to say I very rarely have black students. I have a handful of Latinx, Latino, Latina students. Um, I have a, a handful of LGBTQ students. And I know that their experience, for example, of the curriculum is one of, you know, feeling marginalized. Um, and I work very hard as a professor to center voices that are traditionally in the margins. So researchers and practitioners of color, non-binary um, and queer voices and put those at the, like at the heart of my syllabi, let's say. So that's one way to intervene. Of course, that's just nominal as one black professor in an information studies department or in an iSchool at UCLA, right? Um, I think where I try to make more of a difference is in my research. And my research has been about confronting big technology companies and the way that they actively participate in, um, you know, oppressive practices, information practices. So I write and research a lot about Google and search engines and the way in which search engines are profoundly implicated in distorting the images of Black women, um, Black girls, Latinas, Asian women and girls, um, more broadly, you know, women as a category and girls and thinking about the outsides, outsized space that technology companies and search engines take up in the information and knowledge landscape that people, for example, turn to Google many times during the day and might not step foot in a library once in a year, in five years, in 10 years, especially after they leave kind of the K through 12 environment, right? So I think these things are really important and that's a place where I am very serious and focused about the role that tech companies play in not just spreading mis and disinformation and white supremacy, because of course we know that they're uh, profoundly implicated in that, but you know the imaginary that they occupy for the public about being neutral, credible, reliable information spaces, and the way in which they're also implicated in defunding libraries and schools and universities by virtue of things like not paying taxes or offshoring their profits. So for me, this is a place where there's a huge uh, amount of work to be done. 
and I center again the concerns of people that I see that are oppressed, um, my own community included, because uh, it's really, really important to me, and I think to many other people, to to have these kinds of conversations and do that. I think you you make a an, kind of an important point about you know this question of equitable practices and what it looks like, how it can, you know, it goes beyond the library necessarily, but then there's like all these other kinds of spaces, you know, whether it's education or the community at large in which we're looking at how our equitable practices can have an impact. Um, So it's, it really is just like, like when you think about the scale of <laughs> of what needs to be done and on all of these different areas in which to do them is it can be a little overwhelming actually but um um to kind of like go off the point i think you know in in looking at this like we just kind of you know pick an area that you're in and just start from there right um right. And, and work from there that's right. I was actually talking, I was on a call earlier this morning and we were talking, my colleague, she invoked Brittany Cooper, who you know is a black feminist uh, scholar and theorist. And, and she was reminding me about how Brittany Cooper says that, you know, our work should also be our joy, right? And so for her doing the work of social justice, writing and research um, is it's joyous, even though it's really hard work and can also be painful work, but it's like she couldn't imagine herself doing anything but that. And I feel that way about my own work too. Like I don't, I've I've done a lot of things. I've had a lot of different jobs in my life. Probably the only one that holds a candle to being a professor uh, is having been a bartender because that let, I mean, let's face it, that was a super fun job. Um, But you know, okay, second to being a bartender, I will say that being a professor has been a, a site of pain, and it's also a place where, uh, you know, my I feel like my work is very difficult. I worry that one of these tech companies is going to, you know, silk with me. I'm going to come out. My brake lines are going to be cut. You know, something bad is going to happen. I mean, it 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 it's a little bit disconcerting when you're taking on the most powerful industry on planet earth and some of the most powerful companies and, and players in the world. And so in that way, it's a, it's a stressful, I mean, yes, I could make a different choice. And I do tease my students that once we solve the problems of racism and sexism and, um, you know, global wealth inequality, I'm going to start writing about swim up bars because I just want to travel around the world to, you know, like the world's best <laughs> resorts and check out the swim up bars. But see, I can't actually enjoy doing that until I do these other things that are also really important to me so that I could have the freedom to enjoy other things. So, you know, it's weird. I mean, these, uh, these choices, right, that we make, but I think they, the, 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 the situation, the issues that we take on also choose us. Right. We are in a particular place in our careers, in the organizations we work in, in the cities where we live. And we see the things that matter to us and we work on them. And that is important. And I, one of the things that I realized about 
well, as I started to enter middle age, let's say, um, I realized in my 40s was that there isn't a something out there somewhere that I need to find that's like the big enough thing that matters, which I think a lot of my students um, who are in their 20s are obsessed with doing enough, being enough, having it be big enough. You know, they're like, I'm 22 and I haven't, you know, found a cure for cancer. Why should I be alive? You know, they have these really just these burdens that they have imposed upon themselves that are paralyzing. And then they feel like they're not doing enough or they're not in the right place in life. And I think somewhere, um, you know, for me in my 40s, I figured out that where I am is where I'm supposed to be. And let me do the best I can with what is in front of me. And that's a great way to live and to also find meaning and to know that who you are every day on the job, in your family, in your community is exactly enough. And, you know, to press on the thing that you're expert in, which is where you are. So, you know, I think it's kind of like a mindset too about, um, you know, uh, feeling like every little bit matters because it does. It does. Thanks for those words. I feel like, you know, it's just, they're hopeful, you know, and encouraging for sure. I think that oppression and systems of oppression are designed to make us feel hopeless and that we have to solve everything at a, like at the root cause or why bother? But see, you know, we come from a tradition of people who made something out of nothing, you know, who created the conditions for us to be on this call together today, right? I think about my own grandparents, you know, my, uh, my father tell, told me the story uh, uh, always that um, his father, my grandfather, was born, you know, in the Gullah Islands and was sold when he was about five or six to a white man in Philadelphia. And that was how, like, you know, our family came to be, like, that side of the family came to be from Philadelphia. And, um, you know, he was emancipated in his teens and he was a grown man and, you know, went off and started his family, eventually met my grandmother. And, you know, you think about something like being sold, right? Um, as a, a phenomena that happened hundreds of years ago, but you know, I'm not that old and this is my grandfather. So I think about um, my parents not having an education uh, formal, like a college education, um, you know, think about our ancestors who were enslaved and forced to do all kinds of things against their will. And they had a, a you know, they had the imaginary, they had the vision to know it could be different. And everybody worked in their own capacities within the sphere of their influence to shift that, to shift the ground, to change the circumstances. And here we are. And we're doing the same for future generations. Even if we can't see what the outcome will be of the justice that can be brought about in the world, neither could they see it. And some of them, many of them never experienced it. So, you know, that part, it, it's like, I think when you come from a people, any people who's been systematically oppressed, enslaved, have faced genocide, 
ethnic cleansing, all the things that our people have also faced, I think then you, you, you can kind of like locate yourself in a long arc of history and say, well, you know, it can be different and it will be different. And we, you know, when we pull back and we see that, then how can we not be hopeful? I mean, that to me, how can we not be hopeful? Because people shifted things for us and we will indeed shift things for people in the future and it will be better. It has to be this level of like oppression that and global wealth inequality. It's not sustainable. You know, you cannot, you can't have what the, the UK house of Lords um, issued a study a couple years ago. And they said they predicted that by 2030, the top 1% would own two thirds of the world's wealth. Well, that's not sustainable. You know, what that means is um, the conditions will become so harsh and so severe for, you know, uh, the majority of the world that we will, it will require that we demand a different distribution, right? Different possibilities. Well, those are all great points. And um, it's a lot to think about and a lot to digest, but like little by little, step by step, day by day, just like our ancestors did, we take it one step at a time, then we will see a difference possibly. But I think that the hope is what we all need. And I think us being so negative or always talking about the negative is what is sort of brings us down. Um, because we have to remember that, yeah, there are dark days, but, you know, it's always darkest right before dawn. So if we can remember that, then we'll see um, that something better is coming. And I do believe that. Absolutely. You can't have the mountains without the valleys, right? Exactly. Yeah. So your book, Algorithms of Oppression, emerged out of your dissertation work and has been a huge success. What compelled you to write about this topic? Well, I will... I'll tell you that um, kind of along the same lines that we've been talking about, when I was writing my dissertation, you know, there was very little agreement for this. I can remember, uh, you know, making these arguments a decade ago that um, computer code could discriminate uh, and that digital technologies can, in fact, be racist and sexist. They weren't just a matter of the user using the technology wrong, which is, of course, was the prevailing logic at the time. I can remember many, many people saying to me at conferences, different professors saying that my ideas were kind of like half-baked because uh, software at the end of the day was just computer code and computer code was just math and math can't be racist, math can't be sexist. Of course, now you know, my response to those kinds of things, um, which are quite infrequent because so much has happened in the 10 years since I wrote that dissertation. I mean, now it's very much common sense that digital technologies can be racist, right? We have a lot of evidence of uh, algorithms that discriminate. Um, you know, we understand so much more about training data flawed training data, right, racist, uh, you know, and sexist training data for machine learning algorithms. Um, we understand so much more, we have so much more vocabulary around these projects, and we also have a lot more evidence and documentation of the harms. So now, in 2022, when I talk about these kinds of things, people are like, yeah, everybody knows that. 
but you know, when I was writing my dissertation, it, everybody didn't know that. And it was quite controversial, the things that I was talking about. Um, so I'm really grateful that um, my core community of librarians in particular really understood what I was talking about. And librarians all over the country have invited me to come and share my work with them. They have thought about, um, of course, the things we already know about, like how racism works in cataloging and in subject headings and in the way we decide what to keep and what to purge from the library. So, you know, this is my, my core community uh, professionally and they get my work and they have done so much to amplify my voice and to share my voice and to share my research into their own practices. And it's been um, incredible and amazing. And I feel so grateful that to be gotten, right, to be understood uh, at a time when, let's say, the broader engineering and computer science community did not understand and really rejected the kinds of logics that we understood in librarianship and information science. So, uh, yeah, and I'm grateful to all the librarians who bought my book and put it in their libraries, too. It really made a difference. Well, it's an excellent book. <laughs> Groundbreaking. So, yeah, um, I think most libraries are happy to have that in their collections. And I think librarians are happy to have it on their personal bookshelves. I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so that brings us to our last question for you. Uh, you recently tweeted about BIPOC scholars in digital media studies not being cited, which is happening in many other disciplines as well. Can you speak more about that and how do we protect ourselves and our intellectual work when that happens? Yes, I have been um, concerned that uh, theories uh, like intersectionality, which is kind of a black feminist theorization of power in our society, right? Um, things like scholars who help us understand the world with a, a you know a gender and and racial kind of analytic and, and ability to make sense, to historicize and also um, assess the world. Um, those of us who do that kind of work, it's very laborious. It takes time. You know, we have to ground our work in sometimes, uh, you know, years and years of historical research archival research, talking to people. Um, so the kind of social sciences and humanities work, it's painstaking work. People really take their work seriously and, and care very much about um, nuancing our work in order for people to kind of take it up and use it. And what I've seen more and more are computer science students and scholars um, who are kind of, let's say, grabbing a quote here or there from these humanists and social scientists to somehow like make sense of their work. Um, but, you know, it's like that without a, without a deep engagement, 
and maybe sometimes without really knowing what they're um, engaging with. So, you know, this is a this is one of the challenges of doing interdisciplinary work. I tell this to my students all the time, my graduate students. I say, listen, you're going to be if you want to do interdisciplinary work across, you know, ethnic studies, African American studies, Black studies, um, gender studies, information science, computer science, you will need to be literate in all those fields. You'll need to be conversant. You'll need to really understand the research in those areas, but those fields will not necessarily be conversant back with you. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I see more and more with um, people working in computer science who kind of take our ideas that we've spent a long time really trying to even make visible, and then um, they don't cite us, you know, they don't even acknowledge the type of work that we do, because again, they center their own, maybe like quantitative work as being more valuable um, as a way of knowing, you know, epistemologically. So I think, you know, there's a, um, there's been some really great energy in organizing uh, among scholars who do digital studies, broadly speaking, and this includes people like me who are in library and information science to people in social welfare, and social work, education, communications, um, many different fields, science and technology studies, STS, um, who also our work intersects with, let's say, critical race theory or black feminism, um, black studies. Um, and we are kind of organizing ourselves to help, you know, enrich and deepen our fields and make it more visible. Um, so we have a great group that meets out of NYU called the um, Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. And um, I really, really love this community of scholars. Just so many, it's just a multicultural, beautiful um, gathering of, of students and scholars who are interested in the digital and society, but it, particularly in the ways in which, um, you know, there's kind of an uneven deployment um, and engagement and consequence for people of color. So, you know, I guess that's like when I'm out here tweeting, I'm trying to talk to those people and say, hey, listen, you know, there's there's nuance and it's important that we study and know what we're talking about because that will shape the interventions. You know, if you're using um, an, an anti-racist, let's say anti-capitalist, non-binary um, theorist, you know, let's say like Audre Lorde or someone who might, you know, be or some black feminist theorist to justify your binary machine learning logic. Well, see, that doesn't actually make sense, you know, uh, that you're developing for Google. What? You know, <laughs> you know like, or whatever. I mean, it's like I, I just think like, can we double click on that and kind of unpack like the that, you know, we can't, you know, I don't know, what are we doing? So, yeah, those are things that, this is like, I'm in, I'm in like in an ultra nerd space right now. I mean, this is like a conversation that's probably only interesting to about 100 people on planet Earth right now. So I apologize. No, it's, I think it's interesting to, to, I know it is to me, and I'm sure there's plenty of listeners who will find it as well. <laughs> yeah. 
everything right. you've shared with us just has been great. So we really appreciate that. And just to, to um, get your perspective on these kinds of things, I think is just really helpful and enlightening. Listen, you know, the one thing that's so amazing, I think, about librarianship and these conversations is that, you know, librarians are, first of all, are many are avid readers and are profoundly well-educated, you know, self-educated beyond the formal degrees. And um, they're guides to like deeper thinking. And the one thing I will just say is that I often will say to my students, listen, if you think that um, Googling your way through these papers that you write in the university and, you know, Googling your way through work um, and life and cocktail parties and, you know, all the things, barbecues, is the way. Why do you go to college? Because you got Google. And, you know, they're like, okay, Dr. Noble, you know. (laughs) And I'm like, well, we'll see. What I'm trying to say is that being in spaces where you can deepen your knowledge, there's some things that cannot be known in 0.03 seconds. There's some forms of knowledge and ideas in the world that have been contested for thousands of years. We still struggle to have, you know, uh, technologies like Google Maps uh, recognize places, let's say, like Palestine. Okay. I mean, these things are political, they're contested, they're important. And you can't just like use a search engine, you know, through your whole way in life. You have to have some space to carve out for critical thinking, for deepening your knowledge, for learning. Learning is iterative. It's conversational. You know, it's not just memorizing and puking out answers. It's like, you know, deep engagement. And there's no more profound place for me as a child to experience that kind of um, experience than in the library, right? And with librarians who, who actually create the provocations about like, well, what else could we learn about that? Where else could we look? What other discipline or subject area might be looking at that issue too? Let's, you know, let's go on a journey through this, these knowledge spaces and deepen our, you know, our way of thinking about anything. And that to me is so exciting. And I just don't want to see us lose that curiosity, that thirst, that um, the the um, possibilities of having more complex human relationships. Humanizing ourselves is actually one of the most powerful ways that you can resist oppression. Oppression actually exists. It's predicated upon dehumanization. So, you know, we work and have the privilege of being in these humanizing spaces. And I think we have to take that work super seriously. It's really important and it's amazing. Well, on that note, <laughs> I feel like that, that was, that was great. I'm a fangirl, so I can't, everything I say is just like, it's going to be like positive. <laughs> you can like do no wrong. <laughs> no. Whatever you say. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere where it's negative, so it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) Guys. I mean, I'm a fan back. 
Listen, I'm a fan back. I feel like I how did I get so lucky and all these amazing black women who are in our fields and you know, we have to hold each other up because I know that it's like this hard out here in these library streets. <laughs> I know. It is. I know. <laughs> yes. Hey, <laughs> that's all I can say on now. <laughs> uh-huh. I still got a job at it. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> Talk about the perfect place to end. (laughs) Right. We hope you learn more about Sophia Noble. We'd like to share a quote with you before we sign off. I am and always will be a catalyst for change. Shirley Chisholm. Remember to keep walking in your lip voices and please follow us on all of our social media pages.